0: Good morning, church. I'm sad to say we've come to the end of our study in 1 John. I've really enjoyed it. I hope you have too walking through it together. Um, but but here it is, the very end. So let's see what John has for us. Let's stand together and read from 1 John chapter 5 looking at verses 13 through 21. Again, that's 1 John 5:13 through 21. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray as you're seated. Lord, we start off by thanking you for your word to us today. We know that here you have, you have revealed to us so much. We pray that you would give us understanding and a willingness to align our lives with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 13 starts off with a phrase that we've heard throughout the book many times. He says, I write these things. He's given us several reasons why he's written the book, written the letter uh, to his congregation. And he uses this phrase to place emphasis. On what he's about to say. But why don't we review the book by looking at those places? The first instance was all the way back in chapter 1, verse 4. At the very beginning, he says, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So the first reason this letter exists was so that he and his congregation's joy would be fulfilled and complete in each other as we've read throughout the letter, mutual joy comes from mutual love for one another. And if we lack love, we lack God himself. In chapter 2, verse 1, we read, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Sin has been a major topic throughout the book. He's brought it up a lot, right? We should take sin seriously. Only the death of Christ and his shed blood can deal with sin. And he wrote to us so that we would not sin. But remember what comes after that in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. In chapter 2, verse 12 and 14, we were given many reasons why he writes the letter. Many reasons. He writes it to all believers because their sins have been forgiven. He writes it to young believers because they've overcome the evil one and the word of God abides in them. And he writes it to older believers because they know Jesus in chapter 2, verse 21, John writes uh, to them because they know the truth. They know Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the whole time, has been said to be the truth. And in verse 26, he says, He writes these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So, a major part of the book has been a struggle of that truth, the truth of Jesus Christ, against false teachers those who are trying to deceive. The false teachers were marked by their deficient confession about Jesus Christ and their lack of love for fellow Christians. So we have to be diligent against false teaching, and we need to know the truth. And now, in verse 13, John gives us the fullest reason. You might say the biggest reason why he writes the letter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Okay, so John points out a particular audience, his particular audience for the whole letter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. The rest of the verse only applies to those people, those who believe in the name of the Son of God, or to put it another way, those who believe in Jesus and his authority. They are the intended audience of the letter. So he's writing to believers. And he's writing to them so that they can know that they have eternal life. That's the whole point of the book. John tells us here, finally at the very end of it. The whole point is so that they can know they have eternal life. Everything we've covered, from the seriousness of sin and the beauty of the death of Christ, to the love that we're supposed to have for one another, all serves this ultimate goal. To tell us that we can know, we can actually know that we have eternal life. This book is all about Jesus. That was the very first message. 1 John is all about Jesus, and it's all about the confidence that we can have in Jesus. This last passage, verses 14 through 21, are all about what it means to be confident in Christ. And John gives us two broad categories for our confidence. First, We could have confidence in our prayers. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, verse 14. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. John's first thought after telling us why he's writing, right? To know that we have eternal life. His first thought is about prayer, We can have confidence in the things we ask God about. Specifically, we can have confidence in the fact that God hears us. Verse 14, very end there. Now, in our world, we don't put a whole lot of stock in the amazing fact that the creator of the universe hears our prayers. It's not that big of a deal. Specifically, I mean, we take it for granted that the God of the universe hears our prayers. But in the ancient world, it was a huge topic. How can you get your local deity, the God that you worship, to actually hear you? You had to persuade them. You had to bring sacrifices, a lot of them, and very careful sacrifices to these gods. And you had to appease them in certain ways. Paganism was all about how you could convince a God to do something for you. In fact, that's still a great definition for paganism, convincing God to do something for you. For instance, one of the gods worshipped by the Canaanites was Baal. Anybody heard of Baal before? Well, actually, Baal was a common name for many different gods. Baal just meant Lord, actually. If you wanted to seek the pleasure of a particular local Baal, you had to do all this stuff, all of these rituals. And the most common Baal, the one that we know of, from uh, the great prophet Elijah, that Baal was a storm god, okay? So you had to go to him with all of these particular sacrifices and approach him just the right way so that you could convince him to send rain on your crops, okay? That's what you had to do for that Baal. And that was the case in all of these polytheistic religions, especially in the Greco-Roman world, the culture that John is writing into, Okay, it, was, it was very difficult and maybe even thought to be impossible to convince a God to do something you would like. Okay, but things have changed a lot. We don't really think of God like that anymore. And that's because of the influence of Christianity on the world. It's a good thing in that way. Our worldly culture is exactly the opposite. People assume that they're owed an audience with the divine if they want one. In many ways, and for many people, God, far from being somebody who you have no right approaching, has become almost like a celestial therapist. Someone to lob complaints and requests at all the time. There's little thought of whether or not God would actually hear those prayers. It's assumed that he would. And as far as we're concerned, evangelicals, we're used to... Praying spontaneously and boldly, prayer can even become for us mundane, dare I say, boring. Now don't get me wrong, we need to pray often and we need to pray boldly and spontaneously, but we've kind of lost something if we forget the context, the historical context of what John's writing into. Why does John bring up confidence in prayer right after talking about how we can know the Son? Because for many of these believers, the ones John is writing to in his churches, their background is paganism. They were used to not having any confidence before their gods. Maybe these Christians struggled with the idea that God would actually hear them. Maybe we sometimes struggle with the opposite. Maybe we tend to be a bit presumptuous. One of the biggest questions surrounding verses 14 and 15 is this. Is John saying that we can ask God for anything and he has to give it to us? Right? Look at verse 15 again. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. In our cultural background, that's a very good question, right? Because we tend to presume about God. There's a a whole Christian movements that claim that if we just have enough faith, God will give us anything we want. But see, that presumes a lot. It's not the cultural background from which John is writing. He's writing to people who assumed that God would mostly ignore them. And that if they didn't approach in just the right way, he wouldn't hear them at all. But now, through Christ, God hears every prayer that we offer. Do you see how revolutionary of an idea that would have been for them? Do you know that God hears your prayers? Now, I've been speaking in generalities right? From cultures, backgrounds, and movements. Generally speaking, I think our culture in the world and even in the church makes the opposite mistake of the culture John is writing into. We presume that God hears us. We don't assume he doesn't. But maybe that's not true of you individually. Do you know God actually hears your prayers? The God and creator of the universe? And it's not like God has a full inbox and he's going to get to your prayers eventually. He hears them when you pray them. He hears your words. And, and even when we don't know what words to say or how to say those words properly, the scriptures tell us this from Romans 8:26: The spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That's how close we are to God now. That even God himself helps us in our prayers. Even when we don't know what to pray for, the spirit fills in the gaps. And he does that on our behalf because the son has made a way for us to have access to God. That's where our confidence in prayer comes from. It comes from our union with Christ. So you can have confidence that God actually hears your prayers. And if you didn't know that, it's good news today. If you reach out to God, he hears you through his son, Jesus. Praise the Lord. Now to the question of whether or not these verses are telling us that God will give us whatever we want if we ask. It seems clear that that's not what John is saying for a couple of reasons. First, verse 14 says that if we ask anything According to his will, he hears us. God is in control of all things. God knows everything. When we pray to God, we aren't reminding him of things he may have forgotten. We're not bringing up things that he hasn't already realized. We're not informing him of something. Through prayer, we align our will, our wants and desires with God's will. Through prayer, we start to want what God wants. And God has so ordained it that he acts through the prayers of his people. Remember, Jesus taught us to pray just like that. He says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Even Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's crucified reflects this truth. He says, Not my will, but your will be done. So if it's true that if we believe in the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and we name him Lord of our lives, that's what we mean by believe in the name of the Son of God, then we'll start to want what he wants and do what he wants us to do and pray for the things he wants us to pray for, right? That's the practical outworking of prayer. We start to want what God wants. So our confidence in prayer is this, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. It's this amazing dance with God using our prayers to accomplish his purposes and our wants and desires lining up with God's will. That's what is happening in prayer. But how do we know what God's will is in any given situation? Like if we have to pray according to his will, how do we know that? Through this. How can you know God's will? He's told you. This is it. The scriptures tell us the will of God. For instance, we read in Matthew 28 that we should go into all the world and make disciples of Jesus Christ. Well... If you ask, God will give you the direction and the ability to do that because you're asking for something according to his will, his revealed will to you. We know that he wants us to live righteous lives. We've read that a bunch of times already just in this book, right? If you ask the Lord for the ability and help to kill sin, he will give it to you because that is according to his will. We know that he wants us to live wise lives, he doesn't want us to be fools. And James tells us that if we ask the Lord for wisdom, he will give it to us generously, right? All of these are just examples. There's a lot of stuff that we know that God wants from us, but we have to find out. We have to read his word. So God has revealed to us the things he wants to give us. And that's what we should ask for. Let me say that again. God has revealed to us the things he wants to give us. And that's what we should ask for. Now, does that mean God has to give us things if we see Him doing something in Scripture? Like it's some type of spell book. No. For instance, we're told in James to pray for healing for someone who is sick. Praise the Lord. We should do that. It's there. But it falls on God to grant that request according to His will. So the first reason... We know that John isn't giving us a blank check for prayer here is because we need to pray according to God's revealed will. And ultimately, God is God. He will do what he wants. But the second is here in verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Now, I know what you're thinking. What the heck does John mean by sins that lead to death and sins that don't lead to death? All right, that's the big question. Set that aside for a second. Just set that aside for a second. We'll return to that topic in a bit. But he's still talking about prayer. So let's return to the topic of prayer. John gives us an example here of something Christians can boldly ask God for according to his will. If we see someone falling into sin, we should pray for them. That's the first thing we should do. If we see someone falling into sin, we should pray for them. God will give that person life. That's a perfect example of praying for something according to the revealed will of God. And it's a good example of God acting through human prayer, giving life to the one that is prayed for. He wants Christians who have Stumbled into sin to repent and be restored. So we should pray accordingly, right? Now, there's a lot to say about this. For one, Jesus himself demonstrates this in Luke 22, right? He tells Simon Peter that Peter's going to deny him three times. So he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus prays for Peter. And what happens? Peter denies Jesus, true. But he's restored. He becomes the chief of the apostles. Jesus prayed and his prayer had effect. He prayed according to God's will. But another thing to say about this truth is it implies that, that we're actually aware of the struggles our brothers and sisters in Christ have. If we're supposed to pray for a believer who stumbles into sin, we have to know them. We, we can't pray for each other if we don't know what's going on in each other's lives. Kyle uh, came up here and he encouraged you to share with the church. He had no idea that I was going to say that. Uh, the Lord is, is just really great, right? If you have something going on in your life that you need accountability for, man, this is the place. That's one of the beauties of the new community of God that he has created in the local church. We belong to each other now. We belong here in this room. We belong to each other. And we have a responsibility to one another. One of the major takeaways from the book of 1 John is the importance of loving one another. We had a a practical application of loving one another uh, back in chapter three verse seventeen. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Right? Being generous, opening opening your hands and your finances to other people. Well this is another one. Another practical outworking of loving someone else is praying for them. Praying for them as they stumble into sin, praying for them all the time. We can't be loving one another very well if we don't know each other very well and we aren't praying for one another. So if you're looking for some application today, here it is. Get to know someone better. A particular individual someone in this room. Get involved in their lives. Or better yet, welcome someone into your life let them get to know you. We all need accountability and fellow Christians to come alongside of us to keep us in the faith. Let them know. Let someone else know what you struggle with. and Make sure they're praying for you. We all need a lot of prayer. As the word says here, through their prayers, God will give you life. Okay. Now to the matter of sin that leads to death and so on and so forth. I think we can start to understand what John means if we read this with the rest of the book of 1 John in the context of the whole book. Remember, the whole time John has been warning his congregations against false teachers and false teaching, those who had left the fellowship. We've been calling them the secessionists, the leavers. And in chapter 5, verse 12... The last verse we covered last week, it says, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Okay, so those who do not have the son do not have life, which means they must have the opposite, death, right? The one who commits the sin leading to death is the one that sins apart from Christ, According to John, Christians shouldn't be sinning, but back in chapter 2, verse 1, which we've already read today, he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and Jesus Christ is eternal life. So, when Christians sin, they commit a sin that doesn't lead to death, because they have life in the Son of God. Christians shouldn't be sinning, but their sin is dealt with in the son, But when unbelievers sin, they commit a sin that does lead to death because they don't have life. But John says, I do not say that one should pray for that. So is John saying that we shouldn't pray for unbelievers? no. We should be praying that the Lord saves unbelievers. Rather, this is a matter of emphasis. It's kind of like what Jesus says in John 17, verse 9, where he says this, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Does Jesus mean he doesn't love the world? Well, no. In John 3:16, we read, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? So it must not mean that. It's a matter of emphasis. Jesus is praying for his sheep. John's point in this passage isn't that we should be praying for unbelievers. It's that we should be praying for one another. And in a roundabout way, he says, I do not say that one should not pray for that. Okay, so every translation in the English language, pretty much says the exact same thing right there. They all agree that John is being very roundabout. He's very unclear. I do not say that one should pray for that. So he's trying to sidestep it a little bit. He's not saying that we should never pray for unbelievers. He's saying that's not where the emphasis is right now. The emphasis is on praying for one another. We should be praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Regularly, It should be our focus in a regular part of our prayer life that we pray against sin in fellow Christians. And we can be confident that the Lord hears that request and gives it to us because it's according to His will. There can be real confidence in our prayers, especially as it pertains to sin. Sin in each other. If we pray to God that He would help us in our time of need, He will. God hears you. We can be confident in Jesus because we can be confident in our prayers. But we can also be confident in Jesus because second, we can be confident in our perseverance. Verse 17 says, All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. John wants to clarify that no matter if it's the sin that leads to death or the sin that doesn't lead to death, all sin is wrongdoing. He's not giving Christians a license to sin just because that sin won't lead to death. In fact, he stresses the fact here that Christians should be really characterized by our righteousness, not our sinfulness. This is not new ground right? He has said this many times throughout the book. That's why he reiterates something he's already said, right? We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. He said almost the exact same thing back in chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. But here we get the explicit reason why that's the case. But he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. The one born of God is Jesus. Jesus himself protects us from sin. Jesus has conquered the enemy, the evil one. What better protection can we get, right? So if you're struggling with sin today, even as a believer, you need more Jesus. You need more Jesus, not more of your own effort. Jesus is our protection. If you want to have freedom and separation from sin, you need more Jesus. If you want to have victory over the devil, we need more Jesus. Amen? Amen. The answer to sin that arises in your life, again, is not more striving and trying really hard not to sin. It's more Jesus. We can have confidence that we have victory over sin because of him. Real confidence. Sin once ruled every part of us. Sin was who we were. But now, because of Jesus, we're no longer slaves to our sin. We have protection from sin because of Jesus. And that protection, that armor, is the righteousness of Christ. We've put on the protecting armor of the righteousness of Christ. Paul even calls it the breastplate of righteousness. It's not our own righteousness, it's a foreign or even alien righteousness given to us. It's Christ's righteousness. And we need to put on that righteousness every day to make war against the devil. It's more Jesus that will keep us from sin. And we can have the confidence that we have overcome the evil one because of Jesus. There is a war. There's a war going on between God and the world. The world, as I've said in almost every message in this series, is the domain of demonic influence that is ruled over by Satan. And verse 19 says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The two are opposed, God and the world. But John goes on in verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Maybe you've noticed a phrase that's been repeated several times throughout this passage. John has said a lot, We know. We know. If you are in Jesus Christ, then you know he hears your prayers. You know you have protection from sin in Christ. You know you are from God. You know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. You know him who is true. That's a statement of confidence. You know these things. And it's not just head knowledge. It's heart knowledge too. You know it with all that you are. The world and God are opposed, but Christians, they know whose side they're on. We've seen and we've believed the truth. So we can have confidence in Christ because we have confidence in our perseverance in the faith. We know the truth. And who is the one that maintains us throughout this life? None other than the true God. John explicitly calls Jesus God here in verse 20. Let's not glance over that. He is the true God and eternal life. He's our protection. He's our light. He is our life. And it's because of his work and his ministry to us that we can have confidence. We're not going to fall away. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been given eternal life. Verse 13, You will persevere. Ephesians 4 says, we were sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. So, children of God, you can have confidence in Christ today. Praise the Lord. Confidence that He hears your prayers and confidence that you will persevere through sin and temptation and whatever Satan throws at you. You will persevere. Praise the Lord. Because he is the true God. He is the victor of your faith. He has established you eternally in the Father. And the Holy Spirit has sealed you for the day of redemption. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Praise the Lord. John ends his letter uh, on an interesting note little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's an odd thing to end a letter with, right? It seems maybe disconnected, but it's, it's actually not. He just finished saying that Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life, and everything else that pulls our attention away from him is an idol. And remember, he's writing to former pagans, Keep yourselves from idols. For them, they knew exactly what he meant. For us, it's anything that pulls us away from him. What better way to end a letter than with an exhortation? Don't waste your time with things that don't matter. There are many potential idols that your heart might manufacture and that your heart wants to worship. Keep yourselves from idols. Worship the true God and eternal life, Jesus Christ. And you can have confidence in your prayers You can have confidence in your perseverance. Some commentators think that first John was dictated, uh, that John said all of this stuff out loud and someone wrote it down for him. And they say that at the very end, John picks up the pen and writes this last line for himself. It's a fitting end to a wonderful book. And I, I like that idea, it's a personal touch. Jesus Christ is what this book is all about. John ends it on that. Place everything you are in Jesus Christ and keep yourselves from idols. I've really enjoyed our study through First John. I hope you have too. Um, and before we wrap it up here, before we pray, I want to talk about what's coming next the next couple weeks. For one thing, um, by the grace and goodness of God and, and through much boldness and courage, uh, Andrew's going to be wrapping up Colossians next week. Uh, so he, he has faithfully been giving us a steady diet of the word of God through the book of Colossians. How many years? More than two, probably, okay? And he's going to wrap it up next week. So make sure you don't miss that. It's going to be it's going to be excellent. Um, so we're wrapping up two books two weeks in a row. And then after that, we're going to have a special service that I'd encourage you to come to. Um, Pastor Doug Corlew from Summit Church in Northwest Iowa, my former church, is flying down here. And he'll be giving the message two Sundays from now because that service is going to be where I'm ordained. So I'm very excited, and I'd really encourage you to come. Uh, It's still going to be a normal worship service. We're going to worship together, um, but uh, I'd encourage you to be there because it's for you. I'm being ordained to serve you. So (laughs) partake in that with with us. After that, we'll have a potluck, and that's Communion Sunday as well. But after that, we're going to start in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew. Uh, starting at, well, Advent starts next week, but as an Advent series, we're going to do three sermons in the Gospel of Matthew, and then we're going to keep doing the Gospel of Matthew until it's done. Uh, so I stretched 1 John, a book of five chapters into 11 sermons. Praise the Lord. Matthew is um, a lot longer, so I'm not going to tell you when we're going to end, <laughs> but by God's grace, someday we will. Sound Good. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us to 1 John over these last few months. Thank you for what we learned there. That through your son, Jesus Christ, we can have confidence in our eternal salvation. Lord, you are good. You are our light. You are our life. You display love to us in a way that we can't explain. Father, we pray that you would help us to to be a community here, a church here who loves one another and reflects the love that you have given us. We pray that we would desire to honor you and serve you through our righteous living and loving lives to to one another and to our community. We thank you for the reminder today that we can pray to you confidently, even as we do right now, and you hear us because of the ministry of the Son and the intercession of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that we can have confidence that we will persevere we will make it to the end and we will hear from you, well done, good and faithful servant. We look forward to that. We have confidence that that is true. So Lord, now as we worship you, we pray that those things would be on our mind. In Jesus' name. Amen.